just heard, you understand that there are some, some deep inner workings, though they are very clear in Scripture, between the law, the flesh, and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the flesh and faith. What can the law accomplish versus what do we do, what do we have when we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? So that's what we want to look at this morning. If you have a Bible, open with me to Galatians chapter 3, the book of Galatians, the third chapter, and we'll be looking today at verses 6 through 14. We're going to consider the idea of faith, the law, and the gospel. This text before us today is one of the clearest pictures that we have in all of Scripture regarding the relationship of these three concepts and these three topics of faith, the law, and the gospel, and how those things work together. By the power and the wisdom and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the writing that Paul gives us here is crystal clear, and thank the Lord, it is also very simple, and it's very succinct. As we said uh, last time, beginning Galatians chapter 3, Paul has kind of shifted the, the mode of his writing. He began by giving a defense of his apostleship, and he has shifted now. He is going on the offensive. He is exhorting the Galatians that they must stay, they must remain in the idea that they are saved by faith alone. You remember he began this chapter saying, You foolish Galatians, who bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Who has led you astray from the idea that you are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, and led you to believe that you must come to salvation through the works of the law. Now, this theme of proclaiming the idea of salvation by faith alone is really the theme of chapters 3 and 4. We're going to look at the idea of faith alone for our hope of salvation from various angles as we spend the next number of weeks in Galatians 3 and Galatians chapter 4. So let's read our text, and then we need to ask the Lord's help and blessing in our time of study and then we will dive in and consider faith, the law, and the gospel. So Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 6, and this, dear friends, is the word which is active and living, the word of God. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham, the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, who who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we 
would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you now and we recognize that our strength and our mental capacities are insufficient to, um, to take your truth and your word and to cram it into our hearts and minds and to take it away with something to apply, to take your word away with a greater view of the image and the glory of Christ. Again, we recognize that we cannot do that on our own strength, by our own workings. And so we ask you now, Lord, as we come to, to this point, to the study and to the proclamation of your word, Lord, we ask you that it would be clear and that by your spirit that you would make it active and powerful. Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts that are ready and eager to hear and receive and apply the truth. Lord, help us to be humble and to understand that your word must do its work in anyone who would call themselves a follower of Christ. Lord, please help us to not be distracted, to, to not give attention to anything except for the, the glorious truth of your word that is before us. For it is by your truth that we are progressively made more and more like Christ. Your spirit works within us. Your word instructs and informs us. And then by your grace, we are, we are sanctified. We are putting off sin and putting on Christ. So please help us to that end today, Lord. We pray that everything that is said and done in the rest of our service, everything that we have said and done thus far would be honoring and glorifying to you, Lord, for you are high and exalted. You are majestic and glorious. Lord, you are worthy of all praise. And so it's our prayer that every act of worship today would magnify your great name, would glorify, honor, and please you. Lord, make us more like Jesus. Help us to put away sin and to live lives that are pleasing and honoring to you. Proud this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So Paul has made two things very clear in the text before us today. Firstly, it's very clear that the law serves but one purpose, and that is to bring a cursed condemnation on any who would live under the law. We also see that by the work of Christ, we are redeemed from that curse. The price required for and from our sin has been paid, and we can be redeemed through faith alone. To narrow down Paul's point, he instructs the Galatians here to place their only trust and their only hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, to put off the works of the law and to practice faith alone in Christ alone. So to point that at us, then, we must put no confidence in the flesh. We must place our faith and hope in Christ Jesus alone. We must understand that it is not by works of the law that we are saved, but by the glorious and effective and sufficient work of Jesus Christ. So this is our main goal in this text, is to see the example of faith that the Lord, through Paul, puts forth in the man Abraham. We want to see the futility 
of the law and its salvific effects. It cannot save. And then we want to see the glorious work, the glorious blessing, the glorious hope that we have and know through Christ and Christ alone. So look with me first at verses 6 through 9, and let's consider the example of faith. The example of faith. To understand this fully, we have to know some things about the Jews in Paul's day. He's writing about Abraham to and, and, and regarding people who are facing the attacks of these Judaizers. Well, the Jews, they had a great respect for Abraham. Abraham was the father of the Jews, literally the founding member, physically speaking, of their nation. They had a reverential respect for him. He was the man called out and set apart by God to found the Jewish nation. And so with that in mind, I want to turn back because Paul cross-references some, some work in Genesis here. So turn back with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 12. We'll begin in Genesis 12, and then we're also going to make our way to Genesis 15 in a few moments to understand the Lord's calling on Abraham and how the Lord's calling on Abraham is really only an example of faith, an example of belief. So Galatians chapter, or Genesis, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 12, we'll read verses 1 through 4, and this is the, the calling of Abram, before Abraham's name was changed, the calling of Abram. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. The Lord says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. And we'll stop right there. So we see that the Lord has called Abraham. He has called him to leave the land of his fathers, leave the land that he knows where he has family and friends, where he has grown up, to leave this land, go into an unknown land that the Lord would one day show him. That's an extreme command. In verse 4, we see Abraham's response. Verse 4, it says, So Abram Abraham went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. So how did Abraham respond? With faith and obedience. He believed what the Lord was telling him. He went forth in obedience. Now flip uh, maybe a page or two ahead to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, and we'll pick up here at verse 2. Genesis 15, verse 2, and we'll read through verse 6. And again, this is the Lord reiterating his promise to Abraham. This is a number of years later. And Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born of my house is my heir. And then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And the Lord took Abram outside, and he said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars. 
And in verse 6, And then Abram believed in the Lord, and the Lord reckoned that to Abraham as righteousness. Now, firstly, we see, and don't want to miss, though it's not our main point, don't want to miss the glorious promise of the Lord. Here's Abraham doubting that the Lord is going to fulfill his promise. The Lord says, no, I will make your name great. I will bless the nations through you. And though you do not have an offspring yet, go outside and count the stars, and your offspring shall be as numerous as the stars. That is a glorious promise of a faithful God. And friends, we hang our hats on the glorious promises of our faithful God. But to the main point of this, we also notice Abraham's response. In verse 6, there Genesis records that he believed in the Lord, and the Lord reckoned that to, uh, to him as righteousness. Now what's important is that small word there, he believed in the Lord. He didn't just take God at his word. He didn't just believe the message that God gave to him, but he believed in the Lord. For salvation, faith-producing righteousness does not come in just believing in who God is. It comes when we believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the work that he has accomplished. So Abraham believed in the Lord. He believed in the promises of God, that God was who he said he was, that God was going to do what he said he was going to do, that the Lord, through Abraham, would send a Messiah who would die for the sins of God's elect people. So Abraham believed in the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So we can flip back now to Galatians chapter 3, and we see that that is what um, Paul picks up in Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. He says, Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham was counted as righteous, not because of his works of the law, but because of his faith. Now, the interesting thing is the Jews knew this story. The Jews were experts in the Old Testament scriptures. They knew the story of Abraham being called out from the Lord and being called righteous by God because of his faith. When Paul was preaching in a Jewish synagogue in Acts chapter 13, it's recorded that he described the Jews as his brethren, his Jewish brethren, and those who were sons of Abraham's family. Again, Abraham was this monumental figure to the Jews. They traced their lineage and their history back to Abraham. So they they knew about him. They found and they claimed God's promises in and through Abraham. They said, we are his offspring, so we are the heirs of God's promises to Abraham. The Jews also, though, claimed and found their righteousness in being Jews. Passed down through the generations was Jewish law and Jewish custom. And so being Jews, they said, we are made righteous. We are found to be righteous because we keep the law, we keep the customs, and we are circumcised. They really point back to Abraham even and say that that we're made righteous because Abraham was made righteous seemingly if we connect the dots. They think Abraham was made righteous because of his keeping of the law. But, dear friends, that is not true. There's a major problem with that idea. When God declared Abraham to be righteous in Genesis chapter 15, circumcision had not yet been given. Circumcision doesn't come until Genesis 17, which is at least 13 years later. What about the law? Well, the law came through Moses. 
Moses was over 400 years after these promises. And yet in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham was declared, was reckoned to be righteous. He was declared to be righteous. The Lord's righteousness was credited to his account by faith alone. It could not have been by the works of the law or by circumcision because neither had been given. And that's just, it's so important. It's something I think is missed sometimes as we study the New Testament and don't get into these details of the Old Testament because we know the law was there in the Old Testament. We know that circumcision came. But then when we consider that Abraham was the first man declared righteous in this sense, we think, oh, well, it must have been because he obeyed God or because he believed in circumcision. He was circumcised. He circumcised his children and his family. But friends, it's because he believed. None of those things had happened yet when he was declared to be righteous. Abraham was declared righteous by faith alone. And this is the example of faith, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, another rendering of verse 6, it says in the NAS, it says, even so Abraham believed God. But that could also be rendered as just as, just as Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, verse 7, you must know. Therefore, be sure, the NAS says, that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The phrase that the NAS translates, be sure, is the Greek word gnosko. Gnosko speaks of knowledge, a sure a steady, a full, a close, and intimate knowledge. So Paul says, therefore, you must know that it's those who are of faith that are sons of Abraham, not those who keep the law, but those who are of faith. It's not those who are of the circumcision that are the sons of Abraham or those who fastidiously keep the law like the Pharisees and the scribes of the day, but it's those who come to Christ in faith. You know, as we talked about kind of at the beginning of this epistle, you have to think back a couple months. What Paul is doing is he's leveling the playing field. He's telling these Galatian believers that it has nothing to do with your ethnicity that you are declared righteous. There's nothing to do with your race as Jews or as Gentiles that makes you acceptable before God. You're made acceptable before God because you come to him covered in the blood of Christ and clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Paul continues, the scripture, verse 8, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying that all the nations will be blessed in you. Now we'll come back to the end of that verse in a second, and I think there's I think there's an interesting clarification that we can get with a cross-reference to this declaration of the Lord. But first I want to see that it was the Old Testament, the Scripture, that foresaw that salvation would come by faith alone. And so from the beginning of Scripture, all Scripture pointed to the fact that you must be saved through faith alone. Faith alone was the original plan and the original message of the gospel. God did not create the world, spin it into existence, save the people in the Old Testament by some plan. And then in the New Testament, once Christ had come, said, okay, now y'all will be saved through Christ and his blood. From the foundation of the world, from eternity past, when God elected saints, when Father, Son, and Spirit came together to develop the plan of salvation 
From that point, eternally forward, the plan of salvation was that all, Jew and Gentile both, would come to Christ by faith. Now, so what that means, if we think about that, that means that all of Scripture indeed does point to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the main, the prominent, the central idea of all of Scripture. So what does that mean to us, that Jesus is the main point of Scripture? It means that anything we read and study in Scripture, we must somehow figure out how that works into the idea of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, that doesn't mean that you you hear some people say, you take every verse in the Bible and to teach it or preach it, you make a beeline to Christ. That doesn't really fit because there's context that has to be brought in. But every book, every chapter, every section, every story, we can step out and see how does that relate to Christ? How does that drive the the glory of Christ? How does that teach me to be more like Christ? How can I more fully understand the work of Christ from that? And that goes from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation. Jesus is the central message of all of Scripture. Now, I also want to look at the end of verse 8. It says that, that Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, and it preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying that all the nations will be blessed in you. Now, if you're like me, you hear that and you say, that's not the gospel, that, that all the nations will be blessed in Abraham because that's not the gospel. That's not the good news. The gospel is that Jesus died for our sins, that he rose again, that he's ascended on high. That is the good news. But I think there's something interesting in Acts chapter 3. In Acts chapter 3, shortly after Jesus ascended, in verse 25, Peter is preaching to the Jews there in Jerusalem. And he said to them, Acts 3 verse 25, It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and here he quotes from Genesis 12, 3, but Peter says, and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That, that interpretation is key because it's in the seed of Abraham because Jesus was the seed of Abraham. That is the lineage of Christ. And so that gospel that was proclaimed in and to and through Abraham is that through Abraham's lineage, through his people, through the Jews, a savior would come. That was the means, the the people that God would use to bring Christ incarnate to die for the sins of his people. It was not through Abraham's ethnicity. It was not being one of his heritage that blessed the people. But it was because through him a Savior would come, a Savior and a servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we read that, as you read Genesis 12, 3, or this statement from Paul here in Galatians 3, we we must understand that it's not because of Abraham and his ethnicity. It's because through him a Savior would come, the pure and spotless Lamb of God. Closing this section up, Paul says, So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. It all comes back to faith. All who are given from the Lord's saving faith are joined with Abraham and share in Abraham's blessedness. They share in his inheritance. So the question is, do you have righteousness producing faith? You say, I don't know, do I? Am am I made righteous by my faith? Do you have repentance producing faith? 
Does your faith change the way that you live your life every day? Because that is true and genuine saving faith. It transforms you. You see and you know the grace of God, and you're changed by that grace. You're changed through that faith. So we've seen the example of faith. Let's look now in verses 10 through 12 at the futility of the law. So we're kind of going to contrast the, the law and faith, and then these build up to this climax or crescendo in verses 13 and 14 where we'll see the blessing of Christ. So the example of faith and now the futility of the law. Verse 10, for as many are as of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now, that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. It is not on the basis of faith. But on the contrary, he who practices them, he who practices the law, shall live by them, shall live by the law. So now, verse 10 is a little bit wordy. For as many as are of the works of the law, for as many as who rely on the works of the law, Paul says, are under a curse. The New, New Treasury of Scripture Knowledge, that's a mouthful, but it's a, it's a real helpful book I heard MacArthur recommend. It's a, a book just full of cross-references. Every word almost in Scripture is cross-referenced to to all its different uses. So the new treasury of scripture knowledge explains this idea. It says, any system of belief which makes salvation depend upon what we do for God instead of what God in his grace has already done for us violates this principle. It says, and those who depend on works in any sense have fallen from grace. That's what Paul mentions in Galatians 5.4, that they have fallen from grace because Paul's not just talking about Old Testament law. The definite article for as many as are of the works of the law, that definite article is not really there. He's saying anyone who relies on any types of merit-based salvation, you are under a curse. If you count on anything that you do to be saved, you might as well condemn yourself because you are under a curse. And Paul quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. He says, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them or to perform them. Deuteronomy says that you must confirm the law by doing the works of the law. James 2.10 is clear here. James writes that whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point is guilty of all. The one who keeps the law at every given area, yet breaks the law in even one point, is guilty of breaking the entire law. If the law is what you depend upon for your salvation, for your hope, for your righteousness, if you break it at even one point, you have fallen short of the standard of God. Verse 11, Paul says, It is evident that no one is justified by the law before God because the righteous man shall live by faith. The righteous man shall live by faith. That is a quotation of Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. And reading that whole verse, I think, will help drive us some application of this idea that the righteous shall live by faith. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4 
reads as follows, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. Read that again. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous man will live by his faith. So there, the Lord, in, in revealing this to Habakkuk, contrasts pride and faith. The proud man, his soul is not right within them, but the just man, the righteous man, will live by faith. So just consider this implication as we think about those two ideas together. Is there anything more arrogant or anything more prideful than to think that you can meet the Lord's standard of holiness and perfection by your own merit, by your own deeds, by your own doing? Is there anything more self-aggrandizing than to believe that your obedience, your own obedience, is pure enough to meet and to reach God's holy standard? Is there anything more arrogant than to reject the precious and holy blood of Christ which covers over your sins and to reject his sacrifice because you want to live according to your own merit for righteousness? Could there be anything more prideful than to reject the gift of Christ because you think you are good enough to reach heaven? James 4, 6 reminds us that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And I want to think just for a second as we think about the idea of pride and faith, uh, legalism and faith. I want to just think for a second. This is a reason I believe that we need to be very careful with the idea of legalism, with, with charging another brother or sister with being legalistic. There are very serious, very eternal ramifications and consequences of the one who is a legalist. The Lord says that they are arrogant and proud, and God opposes those who are arrogant and proud. So we need to be very careful that we don't wrongly apply an idea of legalism just because sometimes it might make us feel better to say that this person is a legalist and their rules are ridiculous. Now, that is true. There are many who want to live according to man-made laws because they feel good about that. They are being legalistic, and they are not honoring the Lord in that. But we must be so careful. Different and stricter convictions do not always point to a spirit of legalism. Uh, it's just we, we must be careful because to, to call someone a legalist is not a minor thing. It's not like telling a, a brother or sister that they need to work on a sharp tongue because a sharp tongue is a sin that is pretty commonly seen throughout Scripture. But a legalistic spirit is prideful and arrogant. And the Lord opposes those who are proud. Verse 12, continuing on, Paul says, However, the law is not on the basis, it is not of faith. On the contrast, he who practices them, he who practices the law, shall live by the law. In Romans 10.5, Paul would write that the man who practices the righteousness, which is based on the law, shall live by that righteousness. One who would be made righteous by the law will be judged by that very same standard. If you find your righteousness according to the law, you will be judged according to the righteousness of the law. And scripture is clear that none of us will ever measure up to that standard. 
We cannot be perfect. We cannot be holy. We cannot be without blame. There's no merging of faith and works. Salvation comes to you either by your keeping perfectly the law or it comes through faith alone in Christ alone. There's no, I'll start out with faith and then I'll add some works or I'll start out with works and then the Lord will add to me some faith. Those things do not happen. You come to Christ either by faith alone or you come to eternity before the Lord and you are perfect, holy, and blameless on your own merit. And if that's your plan of salvation, dear ones, I can tell you, you will end up being condemned to hell because there are none who are right. There are none who are holy. There are none who are just. So that is the futility of the law. We've seen the example of faith, the futility of the law, two sides of the coin. And now we want to come to the third point in verses 13 and 14 and consider the, the climax of this passage, the blessing of Christ, the hope that we see and know in Christ. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So the law brings only cursing. Faith alone brings about the blessing of righteousness. And with those, things, those two things being true, we understand that there must be a supreme object of faith to bring about that righteousness. If the law brings only a curse, your faith must be in a supreme object or a supreme person to bring about righteousness. Not only is there a supreme object of that faith, the man Jesus Christ, there's also a supreme work to your own righteousness. Jesus was holy. He was perfect. He was spotless. He was without blame. He lived a sinless life. Not only did he live a sinless life, but he became a curse for you. That is the, the glorious and supreme object of your faith, the man, Jesus Christ, in his perfect life and his sacrificial death. So Paul says then, firstly, that Jesus redeemed us from the curse of law. He redeemed us from the curse of the law. Jesus made the payment of the price that was required for your debt of sin. Jesus paid the price that was required to redeem you from the power and the dominion of Satan. What was the price that he paid? What, what did our redemption cost? 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19 says that you were not redeemed with, with perishable things like silver or gold. But what were you redeemed with? You were redeemed with the precious blood. Precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless. The blood of Christ. So as we consider the blessing of salvation, consider the price of your redemption. The blood of Jesus. We must understand who Jesus was to even understand the preciousness of that blood. Again, he was pure, spotless, blameless, righteous. He was God in human form, God incarnate. And it was the blood of this Jesus, the blood of the very Son of God, in human form that redeemed you 
from the curse of your sin that paid the penalty that was required by your sin. Now, just think for a moment about the personal nature of that statement. Because our salvation is personal. Jesus paid the price for your sin so that he could redeem you. He paid the price for my sin so that he could redeem me. He paid the, requir- the price required for each and every sin that you and I have committed. This is no distant Savior. This is no generic type of salvation with some far-off being that saves us. This is a real price that was paid in space and time by an eternal and perfect and holy being. Dear friends, that is gloriously good news. It's gloriously good news. It is good news that stands, good news that remains, good news that is an anchor even in the most desperate and difficult and challenging of times. We don't have many anchors in life because this life is fleeting and fading and passing away. But this one anchor remains. The price for your sin was paid. It was paid in full by the spotless and holy Lamb of God. And it's that hope that we are able to stand in when trials come, when difficulties come when we face tribulation and great suffering and tribulation and suffering will come they are here and if you've not suffered recently you should prepare yourself because if you are the lord's he will sanctify you by suffering he will sanctify you by difficult circumstances and when those things come dear friends rely on and lean upon and find all your strength in this glorious good news that christ died for your sins that he keeps you, that he holds you, that you are his and he is yours because you are bought with the precious blood of Christ. And how is this redemption accomplished? Paul says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Our redemption cost Christ becoming a curse for us. MacArthur offers an interesting explanation of this idea, tying into the, to the Old Testament, the old forms of Judaism, where this is pulled from. He said that in ancient Judaism, a criminal who was executed, usually by stoning, would then be tied to a post, really, really a type of a tree. And that criminal's body would hang there until sunset as a visible representation of that person's rejection of God. And their rejection by God. So it's not that that person became cursed by being hung on that tree, but that person was hung on the tree because they had been cursed. MacArthur finally wraps that up saying, Jesus did not become a curse because he was crucified, but he was crucified because he was cursed in taking the full sin of the world upon himself. Jesus was cursed because he took our sin upon himself. That is why he was crucified. If you were to tie that into the Old Testament idea, of course, all the scripture works together. All of the plans of God work together according to his will. But Jesus was crucified as a show that he was cursed. He bore our curse 
in himself. How did he bear that curse? Isaiah 53, 6 says that he became a curse because the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. Can the Lord cause the iniquity of us all to fall upon him? It pleased the Lord to crush him because the Lord knew that that was the way of salvation. And so if this is the great cost of sin, what is the importance of our call to be holy? Friends, if it costs Christ to bear the full and the angry wrath of the Father so that you could be forgiven, are you forgiven that you might continue to walk in sin? No, of course not. You are forgiven so that you might be made holy, that you might be sanctified, that you might put off the flesh, walk by the Spirit, and being conformed to Christ. Calvin said that Jesus could not cease to be the object of the Father's love. And praise God for that, that Jesus always remained God, remained an object of the Father's love. But Calvin continued, and yet he endured the Father's wrath. He had to deal with God as an angry judge. Jesus dealt with the Father as an angry judge in your place and in my place. Do you hear that? That your Savior suffered the wrath of his Father so that you might be redeemed from the curse and the power of your sin. Why did he become a curse to redeem us? Verse 14 tells us. He did this in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The blessing of Abraham came to the Gentiles through Christ. The blessing of being God's chosen people. The blessing of having the Spirit come and imparted to your dead soul so that the Spirit could then bring you to life. And what are you called to in that new life that the Spirit alone can bring and give? You're called to obedience. You're called to devotion unto the Lord. You're called to continual, ongoing repentance. You're called to a God-glorifying love for and devotion to your fellow saints. For it is by your love that the world will know that you are his disciples. So to summarize, to bring this to a close, we see that the law brings only condemnation. There's no hope, no hope for those who choose to live under the oppressive curse of the law. All you will know is oppression and condemnation if you choose to remain under the law. But Christ became that curse for us. He exchanged his righteousness for our condemnation. He, he transferred his glorious holiness to our account, his glorious righteousness to our account by becoming a curse for us because we have to be forgiven. We have to be made righteous. How does that transfer take place? The exchange of his righteousness for our condemnation takes place by faith alone in Christ alone. It is by the cross, it was at the cross that this redemption took place, that this redemptive price was paid. For it was there at the cross that Jesus became a curse for us, was condemned and bore the Father's full wrath so that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, by the blood that he poured out on the cross, are you healed and are you forgiven? Friends, our only hope, 
Our only duty is to run to Christ in faith and repentance, genuine faith and genuine repentance. When we do this, we receive the promise of the Spirit, and the Spirit is said to lead and to guide us into all truth. The Spirit will convict the world of sin and unrighteousness, and surely the Spirit will convict believers of sin and unrighteousness. The Spirit imparts to us a new love, a love for God by which we obey His commands, not out of a spirit of duty, a spirit of legalism, but by a spirit of devotion. How do you know that that you are obeying from devotion and not subjecting yourself again unto the law? It's when you walk in obedience out of a deep desire to please God. Your soul finds its greatest joy in walking in the truth. In walking in obedience, it's really that simple. If you love to obey God, there's only but one source of that love of obedience. And it is because you have saving faith. The Lord has granted you saving faith. And if you don't love to obey God, then you don't love God. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That doesn't mean that every day you're going to wake up and the first thing you're going to ask is, how might I love to obey God? doesn't mean that that's always going to be the case. But if the whole sum of your life is not that you love God and are devoted to loving and serving Him and keeping His commandments because you want to glorify Him, then you need to check the status of your heart. You need to examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. For that is saving faith and action. So may we walk in this type of saving and transforming faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. May we walk in this way in accordance with all that is written, in accordance with all of the Scripture. Dear friends, may we walk in such a way with the sole purpose and the, the sole goal and desire of glorifying God and God alone. May we be steadfast and immovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord for His glory and His glory alone. Let's close in prayer.